Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have got an awful lot to talk about, ladies and gentlemen, and we are going to start doing it right here and right now. We are the home of common sense, as you might expect, and we are uh, going to kick off with Anne Widdicombe, who is, of course, uh, one of the great people uh, who used to be uh, in part of the government that was worthwhile. Uh, she now writes a column for the Daily Express. Uh, she comes on this show on a regular basis. We're going to ask her a question which has been posed on the front page of the Times this morning, uh, which is now uh, that, that Britain is no longer a Christian country. And this is not being said uh, by some YouGov poll. This is being said uh, by a load of uh, people in the clergy. Uh, Three quarters of the Church of England priests believe uh, that it is no longer Christian. Now, Anne, of course, is a Christian, and she'll have a view of that. Um, She is uh, a former government minister, and she's now a member of Reform UK. The survey analysed responses from almost 1,200 priests, uh, the catch-all term for ordained individuals who can celebrate sacraments, such as Holy Communion. Uh, The respondents mainly included vicars, rectors, curates, chaplains, and retired priests who still serve. And I think that for an awful lot of people in this country, they feel that Christianity has been sort of put to one side. I'm no particular advocate of any particular religion. Uh, For me, an awful lot of uh, the problems in this world are caused by religion. Uh, And for me, an awful lot of the kind of zealotry uh, which has come now through the climate change movement uh, and through various other movements um, has been almost religious in its zealotry. And that is probably no good thing to speak of. We're going to be talking as well about Ulez, of course, uh, day two of Sadiq Khan's rollout uh, of the money grab, which he keeps denying. He keeps going on uh, other shows to talk about how this uh, air pollution business is a good thing. Uh, he talks about getting rid of uh, bad air and bringing in good air, but except he's not doing that, and that is a complete and utter crock of nonsense. We'll focus on that as well, uh, but also talk about this incredible picture on the front page of the Times uh, of a man at Nottingham Carnival wielding a giant machete-style zombie knife, uh, which is about as long as your forearm and looks as though it could do an awful lot of damage. He appears to be about to chop somebody's arm off with it. Um, and meanwhile, uh, there's running battles going on the Notting Hill Carnival. I've said it before, I said it yesterday, surely it's time to shut down the Notting Hill Carnival. Uh, we'll also be talking as well about uh, why working from home isn't going to work out. Uh, that's from Amazon. We'll be talking uh, to many of you as well because we want your views. 0344 499 1000. Also, uh, Sarah Vine's written a column today uh, in the Daily Mail in which she says Britain 
Britain has become a third world country when nothing actually works. We've been saying this for a long time. I'm pretty sure Sarah's a listener uh, and a viewer of this show, and that's probably why she has come to that conclusion. Because once again, uh, we've got the national air traffic control systems failing. Uh, we've got excuse after excuse after excuse. Meanwhile, 300,000 people stranded in different parts of the world, unable to get on a plane that can bring them home. Absolutely disgraceful. 0344 499 1000. And finally, uh, just to add, uh, add ignorance to ignominy, uh, James Cleverly is visiting Beijing. What's that all about? We'll find out. This is Talk TV. Uh, this is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV, the only place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Let's say a very good morning to Anne Widdicombe. Anne, uh, very nice to see you again. How are you? Good morning, I'm very well, thank you. Back Excellent. from Kenya. Back from Kenya. Oh, brilliant. Well, we'll catch up on, on what Kenya was like in a minute, because uh, first of all, we must press on with this story on the front page of The Times, a survey of clergy uh, who basically say they don't believe Britain to be a Christian nation anymore. Well, it hasn't been for some time, but if you actually look carefully at that survey, some 64% of those surveys, and it's a very small number of, of the number of priests overall, but some 64% of them uh, actually say they think that it is a Christian country culturally, but not spiritually. And, yes. and, and that is exactly uh, how I see it. We've got an enormous Christian history and Christian culture. Uh, which even the woke brigade can't actually get rid of because it's just there. But uh, spiritually speaking, no, it hasn't been a Christian country for a very long time. There's there's nothing new about that. Um, We find uh, street preachers are arrested, for example, in this country. Uh, We are, you know, for doing nothing more sometimes than reading out a passage from the Bible. Yeah. Uh, Children are no longer taught uh, a scripture at school in, in, in the way that they used to be. Uh, and so, no, it's, it's not a Christian country. We know that. No, I think my ch- my children most recently in secondary school in, in this country were taught um, about all faiths and all religions. They weren't taught one religion, which I suppose you could say is, is, is no harm in that. But but you're absolutely right. But the church perhaps is to blame for some of that as well, isn't it? Because the church has failed in its duty to maintain sort of its mission, if you like, because the church has become is one of the most woke organisations on the planet. If you look at the Archbishop of Canterbury and the, some of the stuff that he comes out with, you know, you see, you, I think I'm pretty sure he once said he wasn't sure if he believed in God. Uh, I'm not sure if he put it quite that far. Um, <laughs> at least I do sincerely hope not, because if so, it shouldn't be Archbishop of Canterbury. It would yeah. be something like a sketch from Yes Prime Minister right. or something. Uh, but you are right that the church has uh, completely failed in its duty uh, to preach the gospel uh, and to uh, present a very clear lead. Now, when I say the church, I'm talking about the established church. I'm talking about the Church of England. Um, and one of the reasons that I left it, about 30 years ago now, one of the reasons that I actually left it was uh, because it no longer seemed to know what it thought about anything. Mm. Well, so it can't give a lead unless it's got a clear position to start with. Mm. That is the problem. And and when you left it, was that when you became a Catholic or was that? Yes. Yeah. And so what do you make of the, the way that that works? Because they've got, I suppose, a more structured hierarchy where you've got the Pope in Rome sitting there in the Vatican um, making all sorts of pronouncements that some people might think are a bit old fashioned, but are a bit more traditional. Well, the, the whole point of, of Catholic teaching is that something can be right uh, but very unpopular, it can be wrong and very popular. And so you don't go by popularity, you go by what is right and what is wrong. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, there is very clear doctrinal teaching in the church which hasn't changed for 2,000 years. Yes. And I mean, I think you probably would be right to say, wouldn't you, that, that one of the confusing pieces of living in a modern Britain uh, is that right and wrong doesn't really seem to be something which troubles many people, you know. That, 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 is, that is a direct result uh, of the decline uh, of Christianity. I mean, if you don't believe that you're going to be held to account for what you do, mm. if you don't believe that there is somebody uh, taking note, uh, if you don't believe that there's a higher authority to uh, to answer to, then why? I mean, why not to do things uh, to please yourself, uh, but which aren't necessarily uh, in to the good of anybody else? Mm. I mean, why not do it if, if you don't believe that there, there is something beyond this earth? Yes. Why not? For, certainly, for most for most crimes at the moment, it would seem there's not much punishment on earth for them, certainly not in Britain. Um, and so, as you say, if there is no higher authority that's going to take care of it, then you're getting away with it. Well, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you don't believe that anybody's uh, watching what you're doing, you do, there is no good reason to resist temptation. As I say, you might as well say, if this earth is all there is, then I'll get everything I can while I'm here. Uh, and that, of course, is the exact opposite of Christianity. Mm. Remember, I will take issue with one thing you said in your introduction. You said you thought religion had been at the root of many ills. Mm. It's not religion. It's what the people who follow that religion do. Mm. Well, perhaps in the name of religion, uh, that's the problem. But, and I shall concede that. Um, this from um, Mick in Wallington. Well, be this clergy approved. Go woke, go broke. He is the Gerald Ratner of Christianity. Uh, which is quite funny. Um, but looking at the papers this morning, Anne, um, and I'm going to come to your column in a minute, uh, which is in the Daily Express today, if anybody hasn't seen it. Uh, the picture on the front page of The Times um, of a man at Notting Hill Carnival um, wielding a massive zombie knife in broad daylight in the middle of London on a Monday sort of afternoon is extraordinary for me. I mean, we've both seen plenty of things in our lifetimes, I'm sure. I don't think I've quite ever seen such a brazen and completely lawless picture, uh, a photograph of a man who clearly has no worries about being identified. He's not wearing any kind of face covering. This is a guy who has nothing to fear, nothing to lose. And if he had contacted somebody with that zombie knife, he would have chopped their arm off. Well, he would. Um, one can only hope that that wasn't what he intended to do. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, I mean, what is he to fear? Uh, the police generally treat the Notting Hill Carnival with a very light hand. <coughs> they, I mean, for example, it's rife with drugs, uh, and the police very, <coughs> very seldom uh, take any action in that respect. Uh, and I'm afraid that with knife crime in general, never mind machetes at, 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 at the carnival, knife crime in general is fueled by the belief that people have that when they put a knife in their pocket or in their handbag, uh, when they go out of doors with a knife, no consequences will ensue. That is their belief, and, you know, they're right. Well, they are. The police, of course, uh, ironically, uh, today, uh, are issuing, and uh, the government are issuing instructions to suggest that uh, these knives will now be... Uh, and here's some footage, I think, of Notting Hill now. I mean, it's a, basically a running battle. I, I put it to Susan Hall yesterday, the uh, prospective mayoral candidate for the Tory party for London, that they should ban the Notting Hill Carnival, uh, to which she said, oh, well, lots of people really like it. Well, I don't think you can enjoy watching bands of, of, of young men sort of marauding through the streets, wielding massive machetes, can you? Well, of course you can't, but that isn't, you know, the be-all and the end-all of the Notting Hill Carnival. I would be in favour of very stringent, if you like, almost over-the-top policing mm. 
uh, of the carnival to see if that actually does make a difference. And if it doesn't, then I think your rather cataclysmic yes. uh, view that it should be banned altogether is worth looking at. But I'd I'd rather not do that immediately because mm. it is a big feature of London. It's something a lot of people innocently enjoy. Well, they do on a, maybe a Sunday, but on the Monday it's, it turns into sort of carnage. And the Police Federation themselves came out yesterday and said that they dread policing the event. So I don't think they'd be too keen to be told you now have to police it even more. Uh, well, one of the reasons I think they dread policing the event is because they're not expected to police. Uh, and I think that, you know, we've got to make it very clear that that's exactly what we expect, that they are expected to take action against drugs, that they are expected to take action against knives. Uh, but to go down the route that's now been suggested, you know, you ban the possession of machetes. Mm. Uh, well, people who've got machetes as souvenirs, you know, locked away in some cupboard will give them up. Uh, and the people who are using them for lawless purposes will not. Right. Well, I was told as well that this morning uh, there was an interview, I think, on Julie Harley Burr's show, uh, where apparently if you go onto the uh, internet to buy a machete, um, I'm presuming they're going to try and stop that now. But if you do at the moment, they also direct you to a place where you can buy balaclava. Now, I can't imagine why you would want a balaclava and a machete, but it sounds like pretty lawless activity to me. Well, it sounds like something that should and could very easily be banned. Yes, absolutely right. Stay where you are, Anne, because I've got lots to talk to you about, including the Dean Dorries and Sir Keir Starmer as well, and also James Cleverley's visit to Beijing. Uh, we've got Anne Widdicombe with us. Um, we'll be back with more after this. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk TV. We're talking to Anne Whittacombe. We've just been discussing the fact that uh, uh, the government is now going to make these zombie knives and machetes supposedly um, illegal. Uh, but, of course, it's not that straightforward because an awful lot of people uh, actually find themselves uh, in a position of owning illegal things and getting their hands on illegal things. And it's not actually all that difficult to do. Uh, they've also presumably made it illegal to buy drugs in this country. But I'm afraid that's rather uh, too straightforward, isn't it? Uh, exactly ridiculous. But uh, let's talk to, uh, to Anne right now. In the column today, Anne, you've written a bit about Dean Dorries, uh, who wrote what can only be described as a pretty um, excoriating um, vision um, and critique of the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who she's clearly uh, not very fond of at all. But you call it a peerless exit. So I think she'll be missed, won't she? Well, she will be missed. Uh, and uh, rightly so, I think. Uh, she was very outspoken, uh, used to say things exactly as she saw them. Sometimes I agree with her, sometimes I didn't. Uh, but whatever, uh, you always knew that, that she was saying it as she saw it, not as she thought other people wanted her to see it. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, that is pretty rare in a politician these days. Well, uh, and, yeah, yeah, I think she's going to be missed um, by some people with a sigh of relief, but by a lot of people, I think, by feeling that, that there is a gap, that there is something that just isn't there, that everybody's going to be very smooth and very yeah. oily and say what they think people want to hear. Uh, and, and the one person who didn't has gone. Yes. And the trouble is, for a lot of Conservative uh, members of Parliament and many Conservative voters, they agreed with what she was saying, that, you know, the Tory party has become a kind of rather nebulous, uh, sort of floating centre-right organisation, which doesn't seem right. to have any great conviction about anything. Centre-right, did you say? Centre-right. Yeah. Centre-left, more likely. <laughs> we, have two, we have two parties in this country. We have a a pink party, very clear pink, and we have a pale pink party. Mm. There is no Conservative Party. There is no party that believes in lowering taxation, that believes in encouraging the enterprise of the individual. There is no such party. It's gone. 
Has it gone, though? Can it be restored? I mean, could it be, for example, I was asked this question by uh, somebody in America the other day. Could it be that another right-wing party like Reform could, could somehow merge with the right-wing uh, members of the Tory party and make a proper right-wing Conservative party? Well, I think um, it, it could. Uh, I also think that what could happen is that it could give the Tories the most almighty shock mm. at the next general election, which might then make them uh, look again at what they've become. Uh, but I don't see this as something that's going to happen very quickly for parties to move as the Conservative Party has. You know, it didn't happen overnight. It's taken a long time and it will take a long time uh, to, to get back to the very raison d'etre uh, of the Conservative Party, which was a, a, a law and order party, mm. for example, which mm. certainly isn't now, which is a low taxes, strict control of spending, strict control of the public finances. Just not there. No. And that's before you even get to the subject of migration, uh, which is a very thorny issue and may well either sink Rishi Sunak uh, or, uh, or sort of buoy him, depending on what he's able to do about the illegal boats and the people coming in by the, th by the thousands every week. If I tell you exactly what he's able to do, he's able to talk, which is all he ever does. He mm. talks. You know, we're going to stop the small boats. Immigration is, you know, one of the most important. He talks. He doesn't do he doesn't know. And he keeps saying that he's going to do, but it's almost as though that is now the politics of, of, of the, the day. You know, people saying they're going to do things. Keir Starmer's the same. He says he's going to do things, but the difference between him and Rishi Sunak is that later on he actually says, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. But still does nothing. Well, I, I mean, that is true, but Keir Starmer cannot do anything in opposition. I mean, that is the first law of politics. You need to be in government. But what Keir Starmer has done recently is something that I think is very, very clever and dangerous. He's taken a leaf out of Blair's book and he's announced that they're not actually going to tax the wealthy. They're mm. not going to have a property tax. They're not going to raise the top rate, etc., etc. He suddenly announced that. And what that will do is exactly what Blair did. But Blair did it very carefully and knew exactly what he was doing, uh, is that it's reassured people. It reassures big business. It reassures successful people. It reassures middle income earners. Mm. You know, reassures those people. Oh, oh it's OK, Labour isn't going to be worse than the Conservatives when it comes to tax. Uh, and I think, that, although it's entirely cynical, and it is cynical because it's not what he believes, he preaches Corbynism, and, but he practices Blairism. Yes. Uh, but we're standing in good stead in the general election that move. The Tories should be far more rattled than they are. Yeah, and whenever people say, well, it, it can't get any worse, surely, um, than, than it is now. Well, it can, always can, can't it? And I mean, let's not forget some of the high and very punitive levels of income tax that were put into power, uh, into play by, by one of the Labour governments under Harold Wilson, I think it was, um, who was charging people, you know, uh, who were making reasonably good amounts of money, but not massive amounts of money, you know, 95% tax. It was called the super tax. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it amounted to. And you've got to also remember all working people are paying national insurance. So the level of state confiscation in your pay packet isn't just the, the income tax. It's mm. also the national insurance on top, yeah. uh, which was supposed to deliver the health service. And look at the state. That's oh, it. my God. I mean, there isn't there isn't really much to look around and see that it's working, to be honest. And I read a piece at the weekend, an, analysis, an economic analysis of people who pay the lower rate of tax, who are somehow ending up paying closer to 40% yeah. without actually realising it. Yes, I mean, as I've just said, you know, you've got to add on national insurance. You've got to realise that what the state is taking from you arbitrarily every month uh, in order to fund 
what it's the services it's supposed to be producing that is never just measured by the the, the basic rate uh, of tax no absolutely. Uh, it, it, there's always a lot more than that yeah. uh, and and people feel overtaxed now if they feel overtaxed what you've got to do is to um say that you will reduce the levels of taxation that is what rishi's saying uh, but he's not saying when and he's not saying how uh, and all he does is he comes out with mantras you know uh, stop the boats, you know, get on top of gun crime, you know, all he comes out with it all the time. He even claimed in an interview that, you know, the small boats were dropping in numbers, that knife crime, knife crime was dropping. Uh, he actually claimed all this in an interview. I mean, give him a moment or two and he'll tell you that tax is falling. <laughs> yeah, he can try and convince you. He's very good at trying to convince you of all sorts of things, but not so good at actually doing, as we say, what he says, uh, what it says on the tin. James cleverly off to Beijing today. What do you make of that? Do you think it's a good thing uh, or yes, possibly I, I, a dangerous I, I, I thing? I do. Um, I'm you know, no keener on China than anybody else is. But I think when it comes to regimes like Saudi Arabia, like China, you've got to ask what is the best approach? Uh, is that approach... Um, complete international isolation, which we haven't got anyway, so, you know, Britain can't go it alone, uh, or is it uh, that you talk, that you keep up contacts, that you don't isolate? And I, I tend to the latter view. I think it's the grown-up view. You talk to other countries. Yes, and I mean, despite the fact that we keep seeing the odd spying scandal popping up, I mean, that is kind of par for the course, isn't it? You would expect the Chinese to have spies here, uh, as indeed we would hope to have some spies in China. I'm sure they've got spies all over the place and nobody likes the internal regime mm. uh, in China. No, nobody likes what they do to their own citizens. But as I say, the only grown-up approach to this is, is to talk to other countries. It's, it's, it's yeah. the only way that you get anywhere at all. Well, I mean, we're going to be visited shortly by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, aren't we, in the autumn? So it's a bit yes. hypocritical if you say, well, we can't go to China uh, because they've got some human rights issues. Well, so have Saudi Arabia, but they're coming here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so it must go on. I mean, it's different if you're actually in, in, in a war with somebody, like Putin, for example. That is completely different. Uh, but as far as, um, you know, trying to influence other countries' regimes go, you're more likely to do that if you talk than you are uh, if you just go for a, a, an isolation policy, which, as I say, doesn't work unless the whole world is engaged yeah. in it. Yeah, absolutely right. And great to see you. Uh, the column today is fabulous. It's in the Daily Express. Uh, go out there and get it, read it and uh, learn from it as well. And Whittacombe, uh, back with us again soon, I'm sure. Coming up, we're going to talk some more uh, to uh, Palm Sandu, the former Met Police Chief Superintendent, about this ban on zombie knives and also the state of the Notting Hill Carnival because it just seems to get more and more violent every single year. Eight people stabbed this time, one in critical condition in hospital, 75 police officers injured, you know, about 280-odd arrests. You know, it can't be surely justifiable anymore to continue to hold this carnage that happens every single August bank holiday. It's not a good idea. It costs us way too much money. And I think it should be just put away. Simple. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I've got a lot of great uh, tweets and uh, messages coming in. Uh, here it is, one from Lynn. I class myself as a Christian, but I don't go to church anymore because they are too woke. Uh, Mike, if we don't defend our Christian religion, says John, we will lose our beautiful Christmas and Easter celebrations. The woke councils will stop putting on the Christmas lights and Britain will be a dull place. Um, one from Lucy, who says Christianity is alive and well and provides great strength for many of us. Um, uh, the Church of England, I'm afraid, has gone woke and we no 
know what that means. And Lucy says she is a 100% Christian. And Chris in Horsham says even more people will work from home now because of ULEZ. City and town centres will die because of a lack of footfall. Well, there's already major parts of cities and towns in this country uh, which have never really recovered from the lockdown. Places that have never reopened, restaurants that have never managed to get through it, uh, places where they weren't given enough of a subsidy, which was a stupid idea anyway, uh, to keep their shops open because for some reason they didn't qualify. Pubs that haven't opened. Uh, places, parts of the country uh, where people just no longer go. And we've got a story today, actually, from the head of Amazon saying working from home really doesn't work and it's a really bad idea. But you're absolutely right. People who don't want to pay to drive their cars, certainly in outer London, are going to go, well, I'm just not going to. Now, if that results in cleaner air, then fine. But I don't think it will because there's a lot of people who can't not drive to work, who can't work from home. And those are the people who do deliveries, the people who drive uh, vans because they run businesses which involve moving things around whether it's, you know, scaffolding equipment or whether it's um, painting and decorating, whether it's plastering, all of that, bricklaying. You know, you need a van, you need a truck, you need something to move the stuff on. You can't just magic it away uh, and get it delivered somewhere uh, without you going. It's that simple. But let's talk about the violent aspect of Notting Hill Carnival. Let's talk about the story today from uh, the Metropolitan Police and indeed from the government that they want to ban these zombie knives because quite timely uh, is the picture on the front page of the Times this morning where a man uh, at Notting Hill is uh, wielding a massive machete with a sort of zombie um, zigzag um, cutout on it so that that causes the maximum damage. He's, he's holding it literally above his head and about to strike somebody with it. You can see video now of sort of running battles in the streets of Notting Hill, which is a lovely, you know, residential neighbourhood. Um, I can't imagine what it must be like to live there because every August bank holiday they have the same problem. And today uh, we've got eight people stabbed. Um, we've got one person in critical condition and it really is quite extraordinary. Um, Metropolitan Police Federation said this yesterday, once again, Nottingham Carnival marred by serious violence and attacks on police officers. 75 of our colleagues assaulted, six bitten, one sexually assaulted, one in hospital. This is absolutely disgusting. No wonder our members dread policing the event. And you'd have to say, I'm going to talk to Palm Sandu now, uh, former Met Police Chief Superintendent. You've got to consider shutting this whole thing down, Palm, haven't you? Good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. And uh, it's an interesting question because what you've got is a minority. You've got some criminals who are intent on causing damage, stabbing people, mm. hurting people. But those people don't save that energy for Notting Hill Carnival. They are committing crimes all the year round. Mm. They've got those zombie knives all the year round. They've got the machetes all year round. So by shutting down the carnival, I'm not sure you're actually going to deal with the problem. All you've done is close down one area, which is full of photographs, full of cameras, full of CCTV, where they are captured easily. That doesn't mean that they're not going into other parts of London, other parts of the country, and doing exactly the same as they're doing at Notting Hill Carnival. And in fairness to the organisers and the people who actually attend, the majority of them are law-abiding individuals who go there for a good time, who go there to enjoy culture, diversity, and have you know a bank holiday weekend of fun. That's what people go there for. This is a small minority who spoil it for everybody else. Well, you've seen that picture, footage that we've just shown there of people running down the street with, with knives, machetes, whatever else they're carrying uh, with intent to do harm. I don't think if you're there with your family, you're going to be enjoying that and you're not going to be enjoying the prospect of these people running at you or people just fighting in front of you. And what I think it does is it kind of turbocharges, as you say, these criminals who might be committing crimes elsewhere, but they wouldn't be rampaging through the streets of London in any other place. They do it in Notting Hill because they can. 
Mike, I'm going to have to disagree with you there because didn't we have uh, an incident in Oxford Street or in central London where we had youths rampaging down the streets? Okay, they weren't carrying knives. Yeah, on they that were occasion. shoplifters, though. But what I'm saying is that criminality is happening more and more right across the country. And on this occasion, these individuals, a few individuals had knives and zombie knives, not all of them. So we can't we can't use the actions of a minority to um, tar the rest of the, the the individuals who they're lawfully. And you're right. I would have hated to have been there with my family and have those people charge at me. But at the same time, there are parts of London where I would hate to be and having that sort of fighting, that sort of criminality happening because that happens outside football matches. But we don't then say, "Oh, let's close down the football grounds." Let's I don't. Close I don't recall. Stadiums. I don't recall the last time there was a football fight which involved machetes and those kind of zombie knives. You're right to say that you know that hooliganism has never really gone away, and you can see that, or you can avoid it as you wish. But it doesn't tend to happen in the middle of somebody's residential street. And if I lived in Notting Hill, I would be even more sure that I didn't want that happening every single year on Bank Holiday Monday. Mike, those individuals who live in Notting Hill bought their houses after Notting Hill had started because Notting Hill Carnival has been going for decades. So they they knew what they were buying into. They knew where they were living. So, okay, I have some sympathy for the criminals, the people who use their doorsteps for urination and whatever else. But I do have sympathy for that. But they knew that Notting Hill Carnival takes place every year and has been for decades. So I'm I'm not going to feel sorry for those individuals. Um, I'm I astonished do feel that sorry. you say that. No, I'm actually, I feel sorry for the individuals who go there to have a, a wonderful weekend and it is scarred by individuals who walk along with knives and machetes. That's the people who need protecting. Those are the people who I, I've got a huge amount of sympathy for. Well, the Police Federation have said uh, that 75 of their colleagues were assaulted, uh, one was sexually assaulted. Um, they say they dread policing the event. So I'm assuming as a former police officer yourself that you would have sympathy with them as well, wouldn't you? Why should they, Abs- why should they go to an event where 75 members of the Metropolitan Police end up injured? And you're absolutely right, because police officers are there to protect the public. They don't expect to be hurt doing their jobs and they don't deserve to be hurt doing their jobs. Um, so I've got absolute um, sympathy with the police officers who have to police Notting Hill Carnival. I myself have policed it as well. And for those Well, would you not say stabbed, to them, as you did to the people that live there, you knew what you were getting into, just suck it up? But the, the same issue can be used for football. I used to dread going to football as well because of the football fights and the hooliganism. That does happen. And whether you like it or not, well, it happens I don't, every I don't know whether you weekend. Can, I don't think you can tell me that there was a football match so far uh, this year, never mind this season, where eight people were stabbed. No, and you're, you're absolutely right. There weren't eight people stabbed at one football match. But if you add them all together and add the people together, that criminality is there. I'm not excusing what's happened on this weekend. I'm not excusing the activity of these criminals. They absolutely deserve to be put in front of the courts and justice needs to be served. And because they are on cam- camera and CCTV, they are not going to get away with it. They will be put up in front of the courts and they will get their just desserts. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's a picture of somebody wielding one of these big knives on the very day um, that the, the, the supposedly crackdown on zombie knives and machetes is going to come into uh, into force. But there's going to be a new criminal offence of possessing a bladed weapon with intent to endanger life or intimidate. I mean, is that necessary? I mean, there's already, is there not a law that covers that? 
there are already laws that cover um, carrying knives, carrying bladed weapons, car carrying any sort of weapon mm. and for intimidating or using them against people. So those laws already exist. Um, it, it's fine that they're going to revisit them and tighten them up. And I think it's more about the sales. But a lot of these people will get their machetes and their zombie knives off the Internet. They don't go into a corner shop and buy them mm. normally. They will get them off the Internet. Um, so I'd welcome the strengthening of those laws and strengthening of the punishment for those individuals who are carrying those knives. Is it realistic to ban them? I think they should be banned because there's no real reason. Why would you need a zombie knife? Why would you need a machete? There's no need for those types of knives and there's certainly no need to be carrying them on the streets. No, of course there isn't. But that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, they've made drugs illegal in this country. But it doesn't stop them being sold everywhere you go um, and people taking drugs everywhere you go. So you can ban things and it doesn't work. And that's where the policing has to come in. The policing has to be strengthened to actually deal with those incidents. But then when they go to court, they need to get um, sentences that are that reflect the crime that they're yeah. committing and reflect the fact that they are carrying these awful weapons around. There's this guy in the front of the Times today, right? He's obviously allowing his picture to be taken. He's got no worries whatsoever about being identified. He's not covered his face. Um, he's wielding the knife in a very a violent and, and aggressive manner. Um, presumably, if they go and find him and arrest him, what are they going to charge him with? Possession of a dangerous weapon? Uh, yes, and also possibly um, what offences did he actually commit with them? Because we only see that one snapshot. Did he actually stab somebody or hurt somebody? What else was he involved right. in? So it will be a whole catalogue of offences. And those offences will be, he will be charged with them and then he will face the courts. And then it's up to the courts um, and possibly a jury or however the court system is going to work, depending on his crimes, um, as to what sentence he gets. There's a pretty good chance he won't go to prison given the way that things are at the moment? Um, there's a pretty good chance that he won't get the justice that we would like him to, to get. There's a backlog log of cases at court. It takes between a year and 18 months to actually get a case to court. And when they do go to court, because of the overcrowding in prisons, they don't get the sentences that they should do. Yes. So would it be more sensible to say, rather than banning machetes, that if you actually are found with one, then you go immediately to prison for a year or something? I, I agree with you and I think that it should be both. It should be banning and these people should actually go to prison or be punished um, accordingly. So I, I agree with you in that respect, but I think both things should happen. The knives and the zombie knives, um, they should be banned off the streets. You should never, ever be carrying them. And if you are caught carrying them, then you should know that yeah. you are going to go to prison. Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, according to the figures I've got here, stabbings now account for 39% of homicides uh, in this country. But how about this? Serrated zombie knives were meant to have been banned in 2016, but it only covered weapons with threatening words or images on the blade. I mean, why would they do that and not just ban all of them? I agree. And it does need to be strengthened so that people can actually be sentenced and sent to prison. And that's what needs to happen. People need to be punished for what they are doing. And these criminals need to be taken off the streets because the public, the police, have a right to, to do what they're doing in a safe manner without have, being threatened, without mm. being hurt and without being assaulted. So they must really fear the consequences of their actions, which at the moment they don't do. I don't think they do. I don't think they fear the consequences. I don't think they... Some of these criminals are not very intelligent. They don't think they're going to get caught. And when they do get caught, they think they're going to get away with it. And it's that lack of intelligence which 
which actually puts them in front of the courts in the first place. Yeah. But we need to strengthen what happens to them. We need to have really strong sentencing to deter them and use use these people as an example for others. Absolutely right. Palm, thanks very much indeed. Palm Sandu, former Metropolitan Police Chief Superintendent. She doesn't want to ban Nottingham Carnival either. It's going to be quite a while before I find somebody who agrees with me on this. Uh, here's what uh, Rick Pryor says. Uh, he's the Metropolitan Police Federation Vice Chairman. You can't have it that every single year, come Tuesday morning, we're contemplating these types of injuries, this number of injuries and sexual assaults and stabbing. It really is awful. And I think that sums it up. Notting Hill Carnival uh, is a danger to everyone. And that's why I think it should be banned. Never mind banning zombie knives. How about you ban the Notting Hill Carnival? This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the place to find the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, of course. Mike from Strood in Kent says this, uh, Ray, the latest flight chaos in France, bring down the whole aviation industry in Europe in one swoop. Uh, sorry, if France can bring down the whole aviation industry in Europe in one swoop, then why can't the French use the same tactic to stop the boats coming across the channel in the same way? Well, if you could somehow disable uh, the people traffickers' computer system, um, that would be great. But unfortunately, I think they don't really need a computer system all they need is a few whatsapp um, sort of uh, accounts and then they can send all of their messages to one another uh, unless you disable it maybe you could disable every whatsapp uh, coming across the channel maybe that would work i don't know uh, on the subject of notting hill ray from huntington says mike you're absolutely right according to the notting hill carnival it should be stopped we live in a very different time now compared to decades ago the police are not a deterrent anymore and the gang culture in london is out of control well done sadiq khan well we're going to talk about sadiq khan uh, and the ulez rollout of course because it's day two today uh, already mark harper uh, the transport secretary has said to sadiq khan in london as mayor that you really shouldn't try and pose any fines on day one uh, of the rollout, which was yesterday, Tuesday, because nobody really knows what is going on. There's an awful lot of cameras that have been disabled. There's an awful lot of people that are not sure where the zone actually begins or where uh, the signs are that tell you where it begins, because in a lot of cases there are no signs in some of the outer boroughs that have now been added to the internal inside of London um, first section of the ULES zone. So it's basically chaos all over the place. The fight back goes on. Uh, there was a bit of scuffling yesterday outside of Downing Street. Uh, where some people were demonstrating against the ULES charges. Um, and so there's a question about should there be grace periods? There's a question about should there be an ability to appeal before an automatic fine is issued? Uh, we've already got cases of people fighting back uh, and beating the system and saying uh, the court says you don't have to pay those fines because you never saw a sign that said you would be fined. Whereas the congestion charge sign actually does tell you you have to pay a congestion charge if you are um, liable for it. Let's talk to Paul Scully, Minister for London, Minister for Tech and Digital Economy and MP for Sutton and Cheam, of course, as well. Paul, uh, very good morning to you. Morning to you, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for joining us. Um, I think, f to be fair uh, to Sadiq Khan, this is kind of rather blown up in his face more than he expected it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. To. Um, he keeps banging on about how this is going to be great for the clean air of London. He's going to make the air cleaner, but he's not actually stopping people from making the air dirty. He's just charging them to do it. Yeah, absolutely. They, this, this is the whole point. You know, ultimately, if you want to have purely clean air, you ban any car coming into London. That's pure. That's totally unreasonable. Yeah. Obviously, everything else is a political choice about where you are on the spectrum for it. Uh, ULES worked in the centre of town originally when it was introduced by Boris a good few years ago now because there's lots of alternative transport, public transport there. And the case and the situation was worse there. In outer London, if you look at places like Enfield where there's open green belt land there, you just don't need the same solution. Yeah, let's tackle air quality where it's a problem, but do it in a in a in a more bespoke way rather than this sledgehammer yeah. to cracking up. Yeah. Well, nobody seems to be able to agree on the quality of the air either because according mm-hmm. to Sadiq Khan, the air inside inner London, where the ULES zone was before, you know, yesterday, the only place where it was, he says that's never been better and, and his policy has improved uh, the, the, uh, the air quality in the centre of London. And I always ask the question, well, if the centre of London air quality is OK, uh, despite the fact that there's loads and loads of cars constantly being jammed up in all of its streets then surely outside of the centre, it must be even better. Yeah, exa- exactly that. Because, uh, you know, I've just been around uh, Sutton just this morning and people were talking about the fact that they need their car. I've just been to Sutton Women's Centre and the, the, this, they're hearing from people at the centre who want to keep their daughters safe. Yeah. They're, they're and uh, and they, they need the car to actually go and pick them up and uh, act as we all do as, uh, as parents, as a taxi service, because the public transport just is not there mm. as an alternative. Funny enough, because the man that's just on your screen at the moment, the mayor, has cut a whole load of bus services despite talking about the Superloop. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so you've got, you know, you've got to be consistent in what he's saying, but that's not his uh, top of his agenda being consistent. I'm afraid. Well, it really isn't, is it? And I mean, he keeps sort of pumping out these statistics about 4,000 people a year dying from air pollution. We know that that's not a correct figure, that that is a figure that has been kind of, you know, shall we say, summarised, if you like, by some people who say that some of those 4,000 people might have died uh, a little bit later in life if they hadn't You're been right. subject to yeah. air pollution. But it's not a proven scientific fact by any means. It's a it's a model that a lot of the figures that he's come up with, he has done the work in his own city hall office mm. and then uh, paid Imperial College a, a lot of money. 800,000 quid, I think, to, isn't it? To validate those figures. And then Imperial College, another area of Imperial College, have done similar studies and found totally different results. And he's had his deputy mayor try and quash um uh, uh the, some of those uh, some of the findings and the conclusions and as you rightly say these four thousand figure it's a statistical model there are no four thousand people right. it's you and i maybe uh living a week or two um less in our whole lifetime uh but being able to yeah. actually live in the greatest city in the world and have all the facilities around us rather than on, on a desert island with no cars well, exactly around. and you literally you can't make those kinds of sweeping statements you know i mean yeah. if i died next year 
Um, it might have something to do with the fact I smoked 60 Marlboros a day for about 35 years, you know. You know I don't do it anymore, but it probably hasn't helped. You know what I mean? You can't suddenly go, oh, he must, have been the, he must have been done over that time he walked through Trafalgar Square. You know, the other time, of course, the other thing that he doesn't mention is the quality of air on the tube, which if he really wanted to clean up London, surely he would do something about that. No, absolutely. Look, there are three things you can do, which, all of which would be a damn sight cheaper to uh, to tackle this. The bespoke nature of tackling air quality in outer London, where it, where it is a problem, looking at particular junctions and air filter situ- um, systems and those kind of things. Finishing off the um, uh, zero emission bus fleet uh, so that that's right the way across London. And as you rightly say, uh, addressing the situation of particulates on the underground, because it's all very well sending people on public transport. But then on the underground, it's up to 10 times the safe amount uh, on some underground platforms. And that's just simply not good enough. And that's the direct responsibility of this mayor. He's got to take some responsibility, finally. He has. I mean, he was saying yesterday as well that this is definitely not about money. He says it's not a a cash grab. And his proof of that is that he turned down a request from Grant Shapps uh, to extend the congestion charging zone. What's the truth about all of that? Now, look, we, what Grant Shapp said, first of all, was he wanted to have proposals. This is back in 2020. Uh, proposals to extend the charge for ULES and, cons- uh, and congestion. Proposals, first of all. And he didn't do any proposals. He just st- suddenly came up with a scheme. He did extend ch- congestion charging. It wasn't in the area. He absolutely, if you remember, it was he made it 24 hours, seven days a week for a particular length of time during COVID, which got some pushed cars back out again, it really um, hampered the West End of London's recovery from COVID and caused a lot of angst at that time. He bought it immediately without speaking to absolutely anybody. So he did extend congestion charge at that time. This to outer London, this um, ULES extension to outer London, not a, not a word to anybody about it until he suddenly decided he was going to consult on it and bring it in mm. within a few weeks and months. But it looks as though there's already quite a few legal problems with this particular rollout of the extended zone anyway, because there are no signs, apparently, in an awful lot of the boroughs. I don't know what it's like down in Sutton, but I know we spoke to um, the leader of Bromley Council the other day and we've spoken to the people in Harrow. And a lot of places like that, which are part of the new zone, haven't got signs up. And according to the courts, anyway, if there isn't a sign uh, and if there isn't a sign that says there is a possibility that you'll be fined, then the fines are not enforceable. Yeah, because look, we are talking about this all the time. But if you are coming in from out of outside London, we're not having the, the, those conversations. Just aren't having aren't um, been had. So you will be caught, uh, unbeknownst to you, if you don't have any signs around. So I'm not a lawyer. You need to get legal advice if that is happening to you. Clearly, but the only sign I've seen um, this morning was a sticker yeah. on one of the traffic lights saying "Ules spy camera" with a uh, an arrow pointing above to right. the. Uh, ULES camera that someone's obviously upset punter has obviously put on there. Right. Well, I mean, Ian Duncan Smith came out and said that he backs the Blade Runners. So, I mean, that could be a big movement for the Tory party. If you want to go and join him, go be my guest. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to encourage uh, that sort of vandalism, but I do encourage people to actually make their voice heard. You know, I, I went to speak to those people at Downing Street. I happened to be up in London yesterday, went to see them. Uh, and I've seen them being written off by some people. There's only a couple of hundred people outside Downing Street. Yeah. There were people in Sutton. There were people right the way around London that were venting their mm. continued 
Fury because they are really struggling. The lowest oh, they really are. small Absolutely right. charities all suffering. As a and result. also, it's a very unclear system. You can't tell, as I said earlier, where it starts. And if you live in one of those parts of, of, of outer London, which is very rural and quite green, because a lot of it is, yeah. you know, you won't know which road is inside it and which road isn't because they, no, haven't, put, right. they haven't put it clearly enough on the, on the signage. And if you come to the Royal Marsden down my way, there's obviously the Chelsea campus, there's one in Sutton as well. If you're getting treated and you're from outside London, you're just you literally just 100 yards or so into the uh, ULES zone. And you're going to get charged £12.50 either for yourself to have treatment or um, for your family. And look, you're right with these green areas. You need a different solution, not this sledgehammer to crack a nut. What? You know, ULES worked in the centre, as I say, and everyone says, oh, well, this is Boris's plan. But that's like sort of saying about radiotherapy uh, is good. Let's just use it everywhere. You use radiotherapy on cancerous cells. You don't use it on non-cancerous cells. Yeah. You don't use a healthy body. Similarly, you usually ULES where there is a problem in outer London, where it's less of a problem and in many areas, minimal problem. You need a different solution. Mm, exactly right. Let's talk a bit about the Notting Hill Carnival. I just had a fascinating conversation with Palm Sandu, former Metropolitan Police uh, detective, who basically said, well, look, if you bought a house in Notting Hill, you should just expect it to be uh, terrible on Monday, bank holiday on August, uh, when you have the carnival, because you knew what you were getting into. People have really, really worked up about what she said. I'm basically suggesting that the, the noise levels, the danger now, the, the, the damage being done, uh, the vandalism, the, the horrible use of... Uh, Sort of public streets as toilets, the fact that 308 arrests were made, including for sexual offences, 57 police officers were attacked, some were kicked, punched, one was sexually assaulted, you know, eight stabbings. Surely it's time to call the whole thing off, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure about calling it off. I think it's clearly outgrown the area. I think that's what police are saying. That's what uh, everyone else is saying. It's really difficult to police because of those res residential streets. I think what the uh, organisers should be doing is sitting down with the police and say, is there another venue that we can move this to? If not, then it clearly does need to be reviewed because you cannot just have people... But it's called a carnival, right? It's not, called, it's not exactly. called, let's get lawless for the day. You know, if no, it was, no. it might, you might then have an argument to say, well, well, we all knew what we expected. It's meant to be a carnival. It's not meant to yeah. be full of people wielding machetes and stabbing each other. No, absolutely. And that's why if you had it in a park, say, or a wider area, a more open area, it can be better police. So you can get those machetes off off the uh, off the streets, which should not be there. They are illegal. You can get up to four years imprisonment just for carrying one of those things. We've actually doubling down on the uh, making sure we're closing the loophole holes to uh, having zombie knives and machetes and those kind of things. But it is already illegal to have many of those knives on the street. Four years in prison. Yeah. Well, so how come that, so that, many that people have got them then? Well, I think this is the problem because it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's clearly difficult for the police to be, as you've just seen from those pictures, to be chasing them through those crowds, through those streets, especially when they were on a horseback there. Mm. Let's look at, with the police, where that carnival maybe goes so you can actually concentrate on the good things of that carnival not uh, and remove that lawlessness. Yeah. Well, maybe just cancel Mondays because Monday seems to be the day they have all the trouble. And you have it on Sunday when it's family day and then don't do it on Monday. How about that? Well... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I say, I think the police will be the best people to uh, to, uh, to decide yeah. that. Yeah, well, they say, they now say the, the police federation is saying they dread policing mm. the event now. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because, of course, you're getting up, you know, it's, it's a wider thing around crime as well, because I know a load of officers from Sutton were distracted to go up to uh, police the Notting Hill Carnival as well, yeah. which actually then leaves holes here where I'm sitting at the moment in, in, in Sutton Town Centre. Yeah. So it, it does affect the whole of London when you're concentrating everything into some streets which are far too small for that kind of carnival. Yeah, exactly right. Paul, thanks very much indeed. Paul Scully, uh, MP, Minister for Tech and Digital Economy and MP for Sutton and Cheam. Uh, he doesn't want to cancel it either. Um, I'm going to find somebody eventually who agrees with me that Notting Hill Carnival, certainly on a Monday, should be shut down, just put into the bin and locked away for good because it's too dangerous, it's too lawless and quite frankly, people don't want it anymore because I would be astonished if anybody says to me, oh yeah, we love it on a Monday when the rampaging begins and the stabbing starts. We really like that. We love watching the police getting beaten to a pulp. We really like watching people getting sexually assaulted and other people defecating in the front gardens uh, of people that live there because after all, they deserve it, don't they? If you buy a house in Notting Hill, of course you should expect that. You know, what's that out there, mummy? Oh, that's just somebody taking a dump. What, in the front garden? Yeah, it's carnival. It's great, isn't it? Wonderful, fantastic. A celebration. This is Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here. The place for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Why else would we be here? Because, of course, that's what you need to hear. That's what you want to hear. That's what you've told us you want to hear. So many of you uh, have now joined the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. That is growing faster than ever. And I'm delighted to say uh, that we are here with you all the way through until one o'clock. Annabelle Denham is going to join us in this hour. Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. Uh, We're going to be talking to her about a great many things. Great piece in the uh, mail today by Sarah Vine, who basically talks about how why nothing works in this country and how uh, we somehow have found ourselves in this rather third world position uh, where nobody seems to care so that if you do turn up for a train and it's not running you just get a sort of shrug if you do end up flying off to uh, i don't know uh, brindiza uh, finding yourself uh, with nowhere to go because the hotels are all full up and the flight back is broken and you can't go anywhere well i'm afraid that's just your problem and you just have to deal with it and there is this kind of you know I mean, kind of quiet abandon that people have taken uh, to the way that things work in this country, where you just kind of don't expect it to anymore. You know, if you get in a car, you're pretty sure that you're going to probably get stuck in traffic at some point or other on some part of your journey, that the roads are not going to be very well put together, that there's going to be a lot of holes in them, a lot of potholes in them, a lot of cones, a lot of closing off of lanes, a lot of closing off of entire roads, a lot of temporary traffic lights. You know, if you want to get a train, as I say, you're very, very fortunate if it goes on time and gets to its destination on time. If you want to get a doctor's appointment no i'm sorry we can't really do that for you today uh if you want to have an operation you've got to pray that it doesn't get cancelled there's so much of it going on this week's kind of uh particular exertion for the public sector and it is uh, about 50 50 owned by the public sector and the private sector the national air traffic control system just kind of fell over apparently because it worked in the way that it was meant to well who on earth designed it to do that it decided it didn't recognize a bit of data and so it basically shut down britain's airspace Now, you might make an argument that that was a safe thing to do, but it certainly wasn't prudent, and it certainly has resulted in inconvenience, and much, much more than that, for many, many thousands of people. A couple of hundred thousand people are still, I think, stranded somewhere where they don't want to be, which is amazing. Now, Annabel Denham's written a piece talking about um, emigrating and possibly thinking about going to live anywhere else. Is it any better anywhere else? Annabel, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. 
Well, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Is it any better anywhere else? I mean, it, it does seem whenever you go to, 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 to sort of European countries that we used to regard as less well organised than us, they seem to be better organised than us now. That's right. A lot of former communist countries, which are going to overtake us in terms of GDP, perhaps within the next decade, look at countries like Romania, look at the British productivity crisis, the fact that output is just going down and down. It's yet to recover to pre-pandemic levels, certainly Mm. um, most acutely in the public sector. There is a really strong sense now that Britain is becoming a poorer and poorer country and doesn't seem to really care enough to do anything about it. So our GDP growth is stagnant, so our output is stagnant, um, and our you know our economy is fundamentally broken, and our politicians simply don't have the answers. Their answer to every problem that we seem to have in Britain today is just to bring in more legislation because it's a knee-jerk response that might deliver some favourable headlines in the short term, but actually is going to continue to act as a sap on growth in the long term. So yeah. we've got a highly regulated, uh, increasingly highly taxed uh, economy um and you know you've got young people now asking what what it's doing what britain is doing for them whether yeah. they could actually have a higher quality of life not just in places that they might typically have gone to like australia or canada or the us but actually countries in uh central or eastern europe that previously we thought of as being much poorer than we are. And just on that productivity point, the gap in productivity now between Britain and Romania is smaller than the productivity gap between the US and the UK. We are really starting to lag behind countries that we thought of as our international uh, rivals, perhaps as as recently as 2008. Mm. And that's really when everything started to change. And what I was focusing on in my article was actually about parenthood and how difficult it is now to raise a child in Britain. So we've had a lot of scandals recently um, coming out, you know, about our maternity services, um, NHS trusts in um, Morecambe, uh, in Shrewsbury and Telford. And now uh, Donna Ockenden, a former senior midwife who did that Ockenden report into Shrewsbury and Telford, is looking at uh, Nottingham uh, NHS trust there um, and is discovering the same thing, just a pattern of failure, possibly of lies and cover cover-ups and you know so that's the beginning of your parenting journey then you've got um, a crisis in childcare in Britain at the moment the fact that we've got possibly the highest childcare costs of anywhere uh, in the world um, perhaps on par with uh, Switzerland but otherwise you know much more expensive mm-hmm. than many uh, other European nations. Then, you know, you've got uh, many problems plaguing the British education system once children do start at school, not least the fact that parents of school-aged children now have this ideological minefield uh, to try and navigate with uh, pupils being indoctrinated in the language of critical race theory. Uh, they have taught about um, trans extremism, the climate emergency, um, and then, you know, as they go through their school careers, um, you know, there's there's questions to be asked about whether they're really being equipped with the school skills that they need for the future workforce, whether our exam system is fundamentally flawed, not least with the grade inflation that we saw, particularly in the uh, recent years. Um, And then people going to university, well, you know, it's become quite clear that Tony Blair's 50% target was a catastrophic mistake, Mm. and that 
that we do not need half of school leavers actually to be going into higher education in that way. What are they coming out with aside from uh, tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt? Um, and then as they go into the economy, you know, low wages, uh, very difficult for young people to get on the housing market. They're heavily dependent on the bank of mum and dad um, or the bank of family, I think, as the BBC are now calling it. Oh, so. I think there are a lot of questions yeah. to be asked. Yeah, no, I mean, you've put that very, very well. I was waiting for, for the list to end because I was wondering it might never end. There's so much going on there. Um, and, of course, we've just passed another landmark today, which is partly to do with the way that things are in this country nowadays. Uh, more than 20,000 migrants is now the number that have crossed the channel this year. And that's, of course, seven months after uh, Rishi Sunak said he was going to stop the boats. Um, it's slightly down on last year, but not by much. It's down, I think, just by a couple of thousand, basically. And it was probably because we had a pretty poor July. But, I mean, that is also a contributing factor for a lot of, an awful lot of people. Because, you know, if, if you're thinking of starting a family and you are thinking about emigrating, there's a pretty good chance you're actually coming to Britain as opposed to leaving it. Because an awful lot of people have decided that Britain is where they want to be. And not only have we got the illegal migration numbers making a new record, but we've got these ludicrous numbers of people coming in to do higher education in this country because it's because it's so worthwhile to the economy we're told but 1.2 million people coming in on actual visas that, that they applied for so free working visas and and i'm not saying they're free to, to to obtain but working visas to work in this country other student visas to, to be a student in this country um and it almost seems as though the government is more welcoming to everybody else than they are to the people that live here I think that's right. Um, you know, I think we need to accept now that we do have open borders here in Britain. Politicians will balk at the idea and they certainly won't want to call it that. But ultimately, if we're going to make it this easy for people to come to Britain, either through legal or indeed coming here illegally, but remaining because it's very, very difficult for us to uh, deport them, um, then we, we, we ultimately need to make it easier for them to participate in the economy. There's absolutely no point in having open borders, but telling these people that they're faced with a binary choice of not working at all or perhaps working in the underground mm. economy. We may as well make it more easy for them to get work visas and to contribute and to pay taxes um, that can help fund public services. At the moment, it seems to me at least that we've got the worst of all worlds. But the, the legal migration, obviously, the figures are absolutely massive, far greater than those who are, uh, say, crossing mm. uh, the channel in small boats. 600,000 people coming to this country uh, last year um and well that's the net figure though it's 1.2 million actually who have come which i think is a, is a sort of hidden figure because when you think of 1.2 million rather than 600,000 that's really the proof of it you know we think 600,000 people have gone back to somewhere else but we're not really sure no, that's right. We've got an increase in the British population of 600,000 people. And, you know, we, we, we hear a lot from politicians that we rely on immigration in order to ensure uh, constant GDP growth. But actually, if we're increasing our population number by that much, then GDP per capita per head isn't increasing at all. People are, you know, the country is not getting uh, wealthier. So it's a really difficult issue. Um, and, you know, one that could mean that the Tories lose the next general election. As you say, Rishi Sunak, he stood up in January this year. He had his five pledges, one of which was stopping the boats. He didn't actually say how many boats he was intending uh, to stop. <laughs> how about none? No, well, um, but at the moment, like you say, there is a decrease this year on last year, but most people are putting that down to very poor weather uh, yeah. over 
summer this year has made crossings a lot more difficult. And we know that more people come in August, September and October than at any other time in the year. So I think we can expect to see increasing numbers crossing the channel over the next eight weeks or so. So let's see what the figures say uh, when we get to the end of the year. But we are not deterring people from wanting to come here, be they uh, you know, refugees who we should absolutely welcome or economic migrants. It's still the case that people are making that perilous journey that we are not able to stop these uh, human traffickers, these people smugglers from bringing them over here. Um, and nor are we able to, you know, able to deport people, um, you know, be it to Rwanda, we're not able to house people, we're not able to process these people, the entire system is completely gummed up um, and broken. And it not only is it going to be devastating for the Conservative Party, but I think it's worth mentioning, Mike, that the Labour Party don't seem to have any solutions no. either. They've no. been suggesting we should have better cooperation with France. Well, the Tories have tried that and it's not delivered any results at all. You know, where are the incentives other than uh, financial? I don't think that we'd be paying France anywhere near enough in order for those to really ensure that they cooperate with us. But what's the incentive for France to stop people from making the journey from their their northern um, coast to our southern coast? Well, you know, there isn't really any incentive. To do so, and Labour saying that they want to um, squash and crush the uh, smuggling trade. Well, it, it isn't clear how they're going to do that. They all they seem to be doing is just opposing everything that the Conservative government is trying. So it, it's a very difficult situation. I struggle to see how the Conservative government are going to stop the boats unless they pull us out of um, the ECHR or indeed the Geneva Convention. Mm. There's going to be absolutely no appetite for them to do that. And even if there was, it would be extremely difficult to get it through Parliament. So, you know, I think, unfortunately, we are where we are, where all the Tories can try and do uh, is uh, is to come up with more and more wheezes, like, you know, the Bibby Stockholm might... but people are tired of that, aren't they? People are sick to death of the of the of the con trick, really, of saying, "Oh, we're going to do this now, and we're going to do that. We're going to go Ascension Island is a place, or maybe Georgia is another place, or maybe the Bibby Stockholm is the answer." You know, none of these things is the answer. It's simply window dressing, uh, and everybody can see what's happening, and basically nothing's happening. And what they see is their town filling up uh, with more migrants coming to stay in hotels, which can no longer be used uh, for anything other than uh, simply housing people the Home Office is putting there. No, I think, yeah, I think I, mean, I think that's right. Um, but as I said, I don't know that the government's really got any choice. How can it uh, assuage voters in those areas who are not happy about the, the levels of migration? Of course, Mike, there's the cost implications mm. of all of them as well, which are absolutely massive. The fact that the government has been booking out hotels, uh, hotel rooms have been sitting empty at the taxpayers' expense because they're trying to prepare for more influxes of migrants crossing over the channel, coming here and trying to find mm. ways in which they can house them. And the whole thing, as I say, is just completely broken. Now, I think one thing that the government could do is uh, to hire a lot more people into the Home Office to process these asylum claims, to try and establish whether these people have come here uh, legitimately, whether they are indeed fleeing, uh, for instance, persecution, whether they're fleeing war-torn countries, or whether they're economic migrants. And if we're able to deport deport them back to the country from where they came, then we would at least be able to do so. But at the moment, the backlog is just getting bigger and bigger. 
Um, and, you know, th there's running parallel to this is, you know, what is how do we define a refugee in the 21st century? Because there's this new term, like I'm sure you've heard, climate refugee. This is the number of people yeah, who, people who are um, fleeing. Oh, I thought those people coming from Scotland. Well, um, <laughs> perhaps understand them doing so. Um, but these are not people um, who are fleeing perhaps war-torn countries, not people who are, uh, would face discrimination yeah. or threat, you know, threats to life in, the, in the, perhaps the sense that most people would understand it. But actually, those who are fleeing countries that have been affected by climate change who are who are coming here. And, and if you add that to the list, then, you know, it's almost, you know, endless the number of people who could legitimately come to Britain um, and claim uh, asylum status. Yeah. So, yeah, and the system as it is at the moment would probably let them in because that would be another reason to be added to the, uh, the numbers of reasons they've already got. And if I'll stay with us for a moment, we're just going to take a little break because we've got some news about some students who have now been kicked out of some luxury accommodation because the Home Office have taken over the building, believe it or not. Guess why? Yeah, that's right. They want to put some migrants in there. Uh, it's coming up. We'll break the news to you in a short moment. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. A bit of breaking news for you, as I said, uh, as we were talking to Annabelle Denham there. We'll come back to Annabelle in a second. Students have been kicked out uh, from a block of luxury accommodation uh, because the Home Office has taken it over for migrants. This is happening uh, in a place in Huddersfield uh, where there were 150 students living there, uh, many of them coming back from last year uh, to do their final year or to do their second year. They'd already got contracts, they'd already moved in, some of them. Uh, but it now turns out that at least 405 asylum seekers uh, will be moved to the HD1 studio flats, which previously had been advertised as luxury student accommodation uh, by a company called Prestige Student Living. 168 students, to be precise, had all signed tenancy agreements due to begin next month. Uh, some carried over from the last year. But, of course, uh, now the landlord has decided, or the company has decided, uh, that they are no longer interested uh, in renting to students and instead they've sold out to the Home Office who are probably paying an absolute uh, through-the-nose amount of money to house all these people. 405 asylum seekers moved into student accommodation uh, in Huddersfield. The people who did have uh, the tenancy rights are now going to have to scramble around to try and find somewhere to live uh, before they start university in the next couple of weeks. Annabelle, I mean, it's really getting to the point now where people, when they see something like that, just get in absolutely incensed. And, uh, you know, I want to move off the subject, but it's very difficult to move away from it because it's such a big deal to a lot of people. Well, of course it is. Uh, you know, it's a massive deal to people. Um, and I think that there's a strong sense at the moment that it's not fair that there are certain people who are coming here illegal, illegally and they are leapfrogging those who are trying mm. to get to Britain, perhaps to work, um, through legal means. Now, obviously, you know, it pains to say that some of these people are genuine refugees and Britain has a very long and proud history of welcoming asylum seekers and we ought to continue to do so. But what we cannot have is a situation where economic migrants are crossing the channel in dinghies um, and they're being processed or perhaps not being processed or being given accommodation ahead of those who are trying to get to Britain through legal routes and they're actually going through the proper processes and ensuring uh, that perhaps they have a job here to come to, perhaps they meet the minimum qualification requirements, minimum salary requirements um, in order to in order to do so. Um, but as I say, you know, the system is just completely broken now. A big part of the problem is that the Home Office is simply not fit for purpose anymore. Mm. Uh, it was in 2006 um, that Labour's John Reid uh, first used that expression. And here we are nearly 20 years later, and it seems to just be getting mm. worse 
worse. What we need to do is split it into a ministry for immigration and a ministry for uh, policing. And then on the immigration side, we need some kind of massive recruitment drive. There are civil servants who seem to float, I believe, between different departments. Why don't we pull them all onto uh, into this uh, area and have them clearing the asylum backlog and processing these people and sending those who do not have a legitimate claim to be an asylum seeker back to the countries uh, from where they came. The government has clearly got to try and get something like the Rwanda plan off the ground. We'll know more about that in the next couple of months and, uh, you know, with the Supreme Court's decision on that. Now, I, I think that the government fears that it is going to lose, um, in which case it's going to have to think of some other idea that perhaps will be thwarted uh, by Parliament, perhaps will be thwarted by um, the courts. But all it can really keep doing is trying. And, you know, I, I do have a lot of sympathy with the Conservative government that it's hitting roadblocks mm. everywhere it turns. You know, it's trying. Um, I believe, you know, it, when it says it's trying to get tough, it's trying to tackle this problem. And it is just finding it almost impossible. It's simply too difficult um, to try and get those uh, migration numbers down, whether it, mm. it's legal um, uh, or illegal. Um, and I think, you know, to, to the public's frustration with this, part of the problem is, that, of course, that we're having these increases in our population with seemingly no uh, real investment in public services. If we are going to accept a constantly higher level of immigration, net migration figures, you know, in perhaps half a million every year, now we're going to need to build more roads, we're going to need to build more hospitals, more schools. Um, and there isn't really a sense that the government is doing that at all. So no. you can understand why people are feeling so exasperated exactly. by it. And people say this a lot, that, you know, they don't mind paying more taxes if the services get better, but the services are getting worse and the taxes are going up. So it's not uh, meeting in the middle anywhere because we've got news today, basically, that um, housing sales will be down uh, quite heavily this year for the first time in a while um, because people are just not wanting to sell the houses. Prices are dropping, um, even though there's a high demand in certain places. People can't afford their mortgages. Uh, there's that sort of pressure on them. Uh, yesterday, Rishi Sunak announced that they would release some of the Brexit red tape, some of the EU red tape on uh, sort of environmental concerns about building houses uh, and water and, and whether or not, uh, you know, some of the water can be slightly... Um, shall we say, less clean or at least less well-regulated than it would be otherwise in order for more houses to be built. Construction should begin uh, within months. They want to create 100,000 homes by 2030. Well, 100,000 homes isn't going to even be a drop in the ocean. You've got 600,000 people coming, as you said last year, and you've got another 600,000 people. So by 2030, you could be looking at, you know, something like 3 million more people here and you're going to build another 100,000 homes. Brilliant. What's that going to do? No, over the last decade, the Conservative government has uh, continually failed to meet its housing target of around 300 homes every year. It's averaged, I believe, around 180,000 every year. And even then, there are questions to be asked as to whether the target is ambitious enough. We need to build many, many more homes here in Britain. We have a housing crisis. We've had successive governments that have failed to liberalise planning, um, meaning that it's extremely difficult for uh, 
construction firms to come in and build more homes. That, of course, that that lack of supply, um, despite no reduction in demand, in fact, demand's going up and up, has meant that house prices have just increased and increased and increased. And, you know, the reason why we find ourselves in a position where people are failing to meet or struggling to meet their mortgage repayments is not just because interest rates were held artificially low throughout the 2010s, but actually that people have had to stretch themselves so much in order to get onto the housing ladder. And all the government has really done to try and address this is to um, just pump up demand further with schemes like help to buy. Um, but you know, that's not actually increased the housing stock. So I think it's well to be welcomed that they're loosening, you know, it's cutting some of this uh, EU red tape in order to make it more easy for homes to be built. But ultimately, it's going to need to be uh, a lot more ambitious. And it, the political reality, of course, is that that will never happen because of nimbyism. There are mm. too many vested interests in constituencies up and down this country who do not want to see more homes being built and it will lobby their local MP until they are blue in the face. Um, and MPs, therefore, will be under such intense pressure to reject any any moves that could lead to some kind of uh, liberalising, loosening of, of planning regulations. So, again, you know, th- th- there is, it's just very difficult to see what the solution to the housing crisis is, but clearly something uh, something needs to be done. And, you know, to your point about the fact that there will be fewer house sales this year, I don't think that's altogether surprising. Of course, we've got the rising interest rates. They were uh, lifted to 5.25% in August. You know, expectation now that they're going to remain around that point until, you know, certainly we're well into 2024, but that's running parallel to a cost of living crisis. And perhaps we're not talking about the cost of living crisis as much at the moment but when we go into winter when energy prices go up um you know when we start to really feel the effects of mm. the ukraine war uh once again um that people are going to be feeling intense uh, pressure they're going to have to be tightening their purse strings uh, even further so i don't think it's, it's surprising at all that the housing market is in that state and you know the question now is just you know how, how far are house prices going to drop um are, is this an early indicator Indicator of a uh, forthcoming recession that the UK has narrowly skirted uh, thus far, but perhaps is on the cards. You know, I think we can expect a lot more economic pain, unfortunately, in the next six months or so. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Annabelle, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor of The Telegraph. Of course, uh, she'll be back uh, next week with more thoughts on all of that. Coming up, though, uh, we're going to have the world of woke. Also, uh, we're going to be talking to Rupert Bell, uh, who is, of course, Talk Radio's um, a royal expert, and he's going to be talking to us about the latest release from Netflix starring Harry and a bit of Meghan. Coming next. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.